want to look in your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 8. We are in week two of our series on revival, and we're looking at revival in scripture first, and we're looking at revival in history, post-biblical history, and we'll do that in the coming weeks. Last week, we looked at the glory of God and revival. We looked at 2 Chronicles 7, and we looked at um, eight things that happen when the glory of God, the fire of God, descends on the people of God. And today, we're going to look in Nehemiah 8 at what happens when the word of God is released among the people of God. Before we dig into this, I just want to say something. We at our Lord's are committed to many things, but this in particular, being rooted in the scriptures. We want to be deeply rooted in the word of God, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Along with that, we want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is how it was with Jesus. He was a person of the word. He was a person anointed with the Holy Spirit to do the works of the Father. It's how the early church was, and this is what we strive for, to be rooted and empowered people. And we're actually going to, that's going to be the, uh, the name of our next All Saints course. We're going to focus, we've got this thing called All Saints that offers some intense study in the scriptures, church history, things like this. And we're calling it Rooted and Empowered this next go around, this next semester. So if you're interested in exploring those things, we're actually going to have an opportunity to look at some ancient writings on prayer. And we're going to look at some contemporary things that uh, like John Wimber's writings and others who talk about being empowered evangelicals. So you can keep that in mind. All right, Nehemiah 8 here, a little bit of historical context. It's important to see what was going on in actual context so that we can hear the word of the Lord for us in 2020. What's going on here in this, this passage, Ezra and Nehemiah actually, it's one book together. Sometimes we divide them, but it's actually one narrative. And what's been going on in this narrative is Nehemiah has been their political leader. The people have come back from exiles. We're looking at about 450 BC. They're coming out of Babylon. They're resettling in the land under Persian rule. And Nehemiah has helped them reconstruct the walls. They've rebuilt the walls. And here at verse at uh, chapter 8, the, the narrative focuses on Ezra. So he's their religious leader. He's the scribe. And now it moves from building the walls building the temple to building the people. And so what this chapter shows is the centrality, the importance of the word of God in building the people of God. And so that helps frame the discussion here. And so we'll look at the first 12 verses. And what I want us to see in particular is what it looks like when God uses his word to initiate revival. Because that's what we catch a glimpse of here in these verses. God uses his word to spark, to ignite, to activate his people. And they're revived. And they're set on fire. So verses 1 through 12 of Nehemiah 8. You may have it in your Bible. We'll have it on slides up here. And we've got quite a few names here. So there's two sets of 13 names. Just a little forewarning. And I'm going to read them out. So that you can, one, grade me, give me a score, maybe hold up something, ah, you failed on that one. I'm joking. Um, the other thing is these are real people. 
So it's important to not skip over them, but these are real people. So the narrative is telling us these are important people that were part of the unfolding of this story. And as we'll see in a minute, there's a group of, of priests, Levi's, but then there's also a bunch of lay people, and they are forever recorded in this passage because the people of God matter. So at verse 1, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12, all the people gather together in the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3, he read it, he read from it, facing the square before the water grate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, also Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Chudaya, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Yozabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So the first thing we see is found there in verse 1, and I'm going to show us a handful of things, what it looks like when God uses his word to revive, to reactivate, to reform his people, and the first is hunger. Look at verse 1. You notice here, all the people are gathering together, and they are asking that the word be read to them. Think about that for a moment. We estimate it was about 30,000 people, actually. You can look at the broader narrative here and see it's about 30,000 people gathered before this gate. 
that was just outside the temple. And so it's a massive expanse of people, and they think that they gathered in this particular area because it was kind of a natural amphitheater. There was some echo and, and help assistance so his voice could be heard. But the people were hungry. They had been in exile. There had been a famine for the word of the Lord like Amos talks about. And now the people are gripped with hunger and thirst for the knowledge of God. They wanted it. Bring us the word. Bring us the word. And we, we think what it was, was it was an excerpt from the Torah. And I'll share this in a moment here. But it was probably excerpts from the book of Deuteronomy. And the people could not get enough. And they're gathering here. And what it also symbolizes, notice, they're not in the temple. They're outside the temple. And so the text is showing us that God's presence is not limited to a particular place. God's presence fills the temple, as we saw last week. And God's presence spills outside of the temple and can't be bound to any geographic location. The presence of God is pervasive and the people of God are starving, are hungry for the word of God. I love this quote by an early church father named Bede. He's a, an English uh, early church father in the seventh century. And listen to what he says. This is beautiful, speaking about this very text. He says, the people gather before the water gate because they are to be given spiritual drink by Ezra, their high priest, from the streams of scripture. By the command to eat food and drink sweet wine, Ezra invites all Christians to rejoice over the abundance of good gifts bestowed on us by God and over the very sweetness of hearing God's word. So the people are gripped with hunger and thirst for the word of God. I want to ask you today, are you hungry? Have there been times when you've been hungry and thirsty for God and his word? Maybe you've lost it a little bit. Maybe you've drifted away from it. I remember when I was 17 years old, something came into my heart as a 17-year-old, a hunger for God in his word. And at times, you know when you have those kind of out of body, you're looking at yourself and saying, who is this? I was having that at 17. I was saying, what in the world? Normally, I had other things that were leading me around through life. And I was getting up early at age 17 to study the scriptures. The Lord ambushed me and invaded my life. And I mean, he quickened something inside of me, a new appetite, a new hunger, a new thirst. And I remember getting up before school. My parents would say, who, who is this kid? Has someone uh, body snatched our kid that we knew before and replaced him? I just, I had new appetites. And before, you know, you think it's too saintly or anything, I would, uh, I was a typical 17-year-old, and I would oftentimes open my Bible and kneel beside my bed and fall asleep on my Bible and drool on it. The Lord sees the earnestness. God was there awakening a hunger inside of me and saying, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want intimacy with me? And so I began to hunger and thirst for God and his word. And I'm telling you, I feel like I'm getting back to some of that at age 50. Anybody with me on that? Do you want to get back to your first love? 
maybe some of those early days with the Lord when you just could not get enough. It was worth any sacrifice. It was worth any time to set apart to be with him. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. The second thing that this text shows us about the word of God being used by God to bring revival and reformation is inclusion. Look at verse 2. It says that both men and women and all who could hear with understanding were participating in this festival around the word of God. And what the text is saying is it was men and women and then all the young people who could understand. And so in Jewish tradition, there's something called a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah. And these are moments when young men and young women become people of the word. They become children. They become sons and daughters of the Torah. And so this text is saying men and women and children are part of this throng of 30,000 people who are there, gripped with hunger, ready to hear the word of God. And we know from earlier in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 7, that Ezra had given himself to studying, to doing, to teaching the word. Before this moment, God has, had been working in his life to prepare him. The text doesn't really go into this in great detail, but this is a New Year festival. This is the people coming together in Nehemiah 8 to celebrate the Jewish New Year. And so what they're doing is putting the previous year behind them, the previous time in exile, their previous failings, and they're saying, God, we are excited about the coming year. What do you have for us? What are you going to do in us? And the word of God was right in the center of that. So they're pledging themselves at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, saying, we are going to study and go deep into your word in this coming year. And so I think it's a timely word for us as we kick off our own new year, 2020. Will you give yourself afresh to cultivating your history with God in the scriptures? Will you dive and dig deep into the word of God? I'm going to be talking about this in the coming weeks, but Rock Bottomley and I had a conversation this week, and I told him there's just something uh, brewing, and I'm seeing it in the people. And so we're doing something kind of a, a scripture initiative for 2020. As we talk about revival, we talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit, we are reminding ourselves that the word of God is so important and key and crucial. The word of God is like gasoline on these things. It's our roots and it's our fuel. And so Rock and I are going to be talking in the coming weeks about a couple of things. One is I want us to uh, do something called the topical memory system for those who are interested. And it's basically a, a collection of 12 verses, 12 categories of verses that make scripture memory easy. And I remember getting introduced to this around 17 or 18 years old, and it became a really helpful way to get into scripture memory and to have my mind renewed and to think about the Lord during the day. It's actually where I learned to do what we talk about arrow prayers to take little verses of scripture, little fragments, and turn them into prayer through the day. So I'm not just jamming my brain full of scripture memory verses, but I'm actually communing with the Lord. So Rock and I will be talking about that. A second thing we're going to talk about is reading the scriptures with fresh vigor this year. So we're going to uh, make this available for people. If you want it, 
um, we're going to talk about a New Testament reading plan that comes out to about 10 minutes a day where you can give yourself to both scripture memory and scripture reading. How does that sound, friends? Sound good? Yeah. A third thing that this text shows us about the word of God in revival speaks about devotion and attention. Look at verse 3. Devotion and attentiveness or attention. So he's reading, and basically this is from 6 a.m. till noon. And the people don't leave. How does that sound? We're going to have an Our Lord's Bible reading outside here in the courtyard from 6 a.m. to noon. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe in the coming days that could happen. But it sounds like a pretty big ask, doesn't it? And all the people were devoted and attentive. As I was looking at this passage this week, I was thinking about the discipline, the challenge of being devoted and attentive. We're human. Most of us, this is a struggle, is it not? To be devoted, to be attentive. One of my favorite books written by one of my favorite Bible teachers of all time, Jack Deere, writes in his 1993 classic, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. He talks about visiting different branches of the church, all the different branches of the church, and interacting with Christian leaders and interacting with lay leaders. And he says, no question across the board, the biggest struggle for the people of God is to schedule time to be with the Lord in Scripture. He himself said that he struggled in different seasons of life. And listen to what he says. He says that the Christians I talk to believe that the word and prayer are important. And they actually want to meditate and pray. But they just don't. In most cases, this is not due to some moral failure in their lives. Rather, they do not meet with the Lord because of a simple mechanical failure. They fail to schedule time with him. So this morning, as we face the new year, I want to encourage you. This is not condemnation. I'm talking to myself. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, how bad do you want it this year? Are you willing to press in, to sacrifice, to schedule time with me like never before? So this is a word of grace. Now, it might be awakening and sobering. Some of you may say, where have I been the last few years? I haven't even spent time in God's presence. Get creative. This doesn't mean that you have to get up at 5 a.m. and get in an uncomfortable chair and kind of do penance before God. This is an invitation to intimacy with the Lord in 2020. How bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? Find time for it. If we can find time for four podcasts a day, traveling around the city, doing what we, we can find time to be with him. We can find time for Netflix. We can find time to sit at his feet and listen to his word and be with him. Do you feel the grace in that? Maybe a little sobering, maybe make you a little uncomfortable, but this is a gracious invitation from a gracious God that wants this more than we do. The Lord wants to give us friendship. The Lord wants us to be intimate friends with him more than we want to. Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. The Lord longs to be gracious to the people of our Lords. He wants us to be close 
He wants us to hunger and thirst for his word so that we experience what Psalm 1 talks about, delighting in the word of the Lord. Yes, there's a place for discipline and scheduling, but there's also this place in God called delight. King David says in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your word. It is my meditation all day long. There's a place in God that the Lord is drawing us into called delight, to be with him, to experience intimacy with him, to have him change us, to transform us from the inside out. A fourth thing here in the text, look at verses four through six. It deals with reverence as the word of God is being read. And this is interesting because you get to see some of the influence on us in contemporary churches. There's a podium that Ezra is standing up on and it's important to see it is not about the elevation of Ezra or anyone else. It is about the elevation of God. It's a symbol. This is the creative word of God, the transcendent creator, the majestic one in all the universe. And so there's an elevated sense to it. He is speaking to us through his word. The people stand, don't they? Seems like they're probably doing some sitting. They're probably doing some standing. And in Ezekiel 2, we see that oftentimes the Lord has people stand so that they're more probably awake and vigilant to receive the word of God. I would encourage you, try this. If you've been struggling a little bit, I came out of a season of seven years of struggle in the desert, which I've been pretty open about, and I'll continue to share from that. But oftentimes, I would find if I was riddled with doubt, God, are you really there? What, where are you, God? Oftentimes, I would take my Bible and lay it open and kneel at the side of my bed, just like I did when I was 17, almost telling my body to get in line, for my mind to get in line. Lord, I want to revere your word like they're doing here in this passage. There's 13 people mentioned two times here, and I already mentioned that these are the first group. These are lay people, lay leaders who were helping in this moment. It wasn't just about Ezra, as we'll see in a minute here, but it was a team effort. The leadership is shared. So Ezra, just like Moses in the first five books, the Pentateuch, he had 70 elders who would help him. Ezra has the same thing. He has people that are helping him. And this brings us to the fifth point here, verses 7 through 8. There is team cooperation and team instruction going on. So yes, Ezra is the one who's taking out the Torah, the book of the law, the revelation of who God is and who God is and his heart for the people and reading from Deuteronomy. But verses 7 through 8 talk about this. It's a, an emphasis on community, on shared leadership, which is very timely for us. If you look at verses 7 through 8, look at what it says. They are helping the people understand the law, understanding the revelation of God that's being read while the people are remaining in their places. This is the early small groups here. These are 
some of the earliest examples we have of the people gathering together in clusters and being explained. So there would be a group of people and someone would come and gather them and get them into smaller circles so that they could dig deeper into the text. So they would probably read a portion and then people would go out and divide into smaller groups so that they could interpret it. Now, why would they interpret it? It was written in Hebrew and these folks spoke Aramaic. So the first thing that had to be done, it had to be translated to many of them. And the second thing the text says is that it had to be applied to them. This is what we try to do on Sundays. The simple reading and simple teaching and explaining of God's revelation to us. That is what we're after. Nothing fancy. There's nothing fancy in this text. Makes me think of Jesus. Even when he would serve the bread with his disciples. So he was the one that was there in the Gospels serving the bread in Mark 8. But he had his disciples helping him, serving the bread. And then we know that Jesus was all about cultivating teams. So he had the three, he had the 12, and he had the 70, and he had more. And so this text is talking about the team participation here. A sixth and final thing here found in verses 9 through 10 and 11 through 12 is these three words that maybe sometimes we don't hear paired together. Holiness, generosity, and joy. And the text is explaining to us that this day is holy, that God is holy, that this moment where they're gathered together, hearing God's word, looking into it, exploring it, letting it search their hearts, this creates a holy space for the Holy Spirit to do his work. It's a transformative moment. And it's interesting, the people are weeping. Why do you think they were weeping? Why do you weep when God's revealing something to you? Some of you were weeping this morning. Amanda was being moved deeply in her affections. Probably different reasons, but I'm guessing that the text is telling us what was being read was so gripping and so deeply moving and encouraging and uplifting that they couldn't help but weep. The Spirit of God moving in their hearts through the Word of God and their response was physical. They were raising their hands. They were kneeling. It was emotive. It touched them at the core of their being. The text is saying. And there came a time in this moment, this six-hour moment, where Ezra and the others said, let's stop weeping. It's time to rejoice. Actually, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Weeping comes for a moment, but then joy comes to infuse you with new strength as you face the year ahead. Beautiful quote I read this week. Holy joy is like oil to the wheels of our obedience. And so, friends, what we're talking about here, interacting with God, interacting with him through his word, is not drudgery. It's not gritting our teeth. Frankly, it's not weeping all the time. There are moments to, to weep, to let the Lord tenderize us, to work 
There may be some things that we need to be sorrowful for. It's a moment of confrontation, an awakening moment. But then the Lord is always, always drawing us into a place of joy. It's what strengthens us. Look at the text and we'll end with this here. Verses 11 and 12. Ezra, the Levites, and the team of people here are getting the people quiet. Notice the sequence here. They experienced quiet, stillness, shalom, peace. Probably like they hadn't in 70 years in the exile. They were together as a community, as the people of God. God was at work. The word of God was moving in them, envisioning them, reminding them of how amazing and awesome Yahweh is. And it gave them an inward peace. It's a wonderful saying by one of my favorite early church fathers, and he says, find inward peace and thousands will be saved. The word of God is how we do that. And I think we're seeing that in this moment here. The people are experiencing a peace, a joy, a transformative moment in God that they hadn't known in a long time or maybe ever before. So these verses here speak to us about being people of the book. We at our Lord's want to be people of the book who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's say that together. Let's say people of the book empowered by the Spirit. Can you humor me? Let's say people of the book empowered by the Spirit. And I want to end with this here. We don't worship a book. We don't have a relationship with a book. As we talk about hunger and devotion and attention and all of this, Jesus makes it abundantly clear in John 5. And in Luke 24, the book is about him. This is a means to an end. You with me on that? If you worship a book, if you try to have a relationship with a book, it's not going to go very far. This brings us to the Father. This brings us to the Son. This brings us to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we are in your presence today, and I, we, we long to experience you in your presence in the coming days, the coming seasons, that that we would experience what they did in this text, the word of God moving us deeply, filling us with joy, changing us, transforming us in our inner person. And as they did, Lord, we quiet ourselves. We sit quiet before you to receive your love, your encouragement, to us. We thank you for who you are. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for the written word that reveals him to us.